This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, we welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can be with us for the next 60 minutes. If you have questions as you've been studying God's word, maybe a particular issue that you've been facing in life or ministry or a passage that's been challenging to you, if we can be of help by God's grace, we'll do our best. You can contact us here locally at the 843 South Carolina Exchange and that 843 exchange is 525-1859. Or if you prefer, you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. We give preference to live callers this morning. So if you want to call in live, you can pretty much assure your answer um, will come, whether it's uh, what you want to hear or not. We'll do our best to respond. Someone emailed us recently, and they they said, this is the third time I've emailed this question. You haven't answered it yet, and kind of upset with me. And, hey, listen, I, I, I answer as many questions as I can, and if I answered every question that came in, I wouldn't have any time to prepare sermons and to do the other things I have to do as a pastor. But we answer as many as we are able and uh, we encourage people to submit just one question at a time, not multiple questions on a single email, and we will respond accordingly. Again, 843-525-1859. Let's go ahead and get started, Rick. All right. Kathy from Savannah writes, I'm a mom of three young kids, so I usually follow along with a past sermon online when I get a chance uh, to listen to a sermon. Is that considered quiet time with the Lord, or do I need to read my Bible on my own without following along with anybody? Also, how often are we supposed to fast and how often? Well, Kathy, those are great questions. You know, there is no set formula for a quiet time, though sometimes people want to maybe impose their way is the best way. Uh, the fact is, is that in the early church, uh, very few had the opportunity to pick up a Bible, so to speak, or a scroll and read it because scrolls were very limited uh, that's why Paul will say to Timothy, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. And so when they came, uh, they would listen to the Scripture being read. Uh, some would go to the particular meeting place, and they would uh, copy sections of the scroll. Paper was very expensive. So it's really not until the invention of the printing press and the Bible being translated into a multiple of languages that the church, the body of Christ, in a broad way have been able to enjoy some of the things that we do. Hey, listen, you're a mom of three. You have to be creative. Uh, nothing wrong with listening to a sermon if that will feed your soul. Uh, when the kids are down for a nap, I know my daughter will often when her children, she has four, are down for a nap, she'll sneak away a little quiet time with the Lord. Uh, sometimes when my wife and I were raising our children, we'd trade off and 
I made sure she had some time, but she was very creative. Uh, she would get up early in the morning, but usually if she was up at six, her child would just follow right on down. So, you know, it is challenging. So be creative, but don't feel like you have to be legalistic. Uh, in terms of how often should we fast, the Bible doesn't actually regulate fasting. It assumes it uh, by some statements that Jesus made, but it doesn't regulate it. And I think that's important because there are times maybe in a person's life where fasting might not be the appropriate thing. If you're, say, a nursing mom, uh, you may really need your nutrition and uh, all kinds of uh food into your body to sustain those children. And God looks at that. And that's why I don't think he says we should fast once a week or, you know, once a month or anything like that. But he does give us some overall instructions for fasting. He talks in Matthew 6, for instance, about three things that we should do in secret. And one of those things is is fasting. So he doesn't say if you fast, but he assumes when you fast. And you don't do it to show off before people in terms of how spiritual are spiritual you might be whenever you fast do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting truly i say to you they will have their reward in full so you know sometimes people come with a real challenging time in their life and i was counseling someone recently and they're new to our church and sadly the entry level Uh, for a lot of people to the church is a crisis in the home. And that's why they came and his wife left him. And I said, well, you know, you should do everything in your power to try to reconcile with your wife. And I encouraged him. I said, you might want to take a a lunch a week instead of going off, uh, you know, to the restaurant to grab a bite or the drive through with COVID, but maybe go out to your car and just really commit that, Uh, time to earnest prayer. And what you find too is that when you skip a meal here and there, uh, you have these little sharp hunger pains. I say sharp, we don't really know what hunger is in this country uh, for the most part, at least comparatively speaking, say to the Jews and the Holocaust. But when you sense that little, hey, I'm hungry, you use that as a reminder to pray. And so there's something to be said for earnest prayer. But if you really want to study this in depth, uh, let me direct you to a message that I did from two series ago. I preached through the book of Daniel. And while I was in the book of Daniel, Daniel 9 opens with really a fast that Daniel is encountering. And I went through like seven purposes for fasting, how to fast, what are the ramifications of fasting, and Uh, That, I think, might be very, very helpful to you. So uh, listen, or actually, I I did it when I was in Daniel 10. So um, go to my Daniel series. If you don't have the Search the Scriptures app, sounds like you do if you're listening to messages, uh, but download it and click on Daniel 10, and I think you'll find some really helpful instruction. I interface what Daniel does with the New Testament teaching on fasting. So, great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. I think we have a live caller who's waiting. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Pastor Brogy. How are you this morning? Uh, Fine. Thank you for calling. How can we help? Hi. My question is, I recently learned that my pastor elder was divorced and remarried long before his ministry began. 
do the requirements of being an elder under First Timothy disqualify him from serving in that capacity, or does it only speak to present character? And would it matter if the divorce happened prior to his conversion? Well, this is a really important question, and so let me try to respond. If you want to listen to a very in-depth answer, uh, go to my series on First Timothy and click on the uh, requirements of an elder. But I don't think that whether something happened before conversion or after conversion with this particular issue has any relevance. Uh, certainly, people say, well, we're forgiven. Well, we are forgiven of things, and we can be forgiven of everything. But some sins carry with them uh, some ramifications. Let me give you an example. We had an, a man in our church in Texas who sadly had abused. Um, it was uh, statutory rape. Uh, the girl was uh 16, if I remember, and at the time, this was in the 1980s, um, to have relations with a, a, a younger person. He was 18, she was 16, went to jail for statutory rape. In either case, uh, his reputation was really tarnished in our community. In the process of things, he found Christ as his personal Savior his life was totally changed. God had forgiven him for that. But still in the small community that we lived in, and now it's a megatropolis, uh, that whole area has exploded with tens of thousands of new people, what was all farmland, there are now housing uh, communities. And But at that time, uh, his reputation with those on the outside was not healthy. And so because of that, he was disqualified from being considered a deacon. In, F, in reference to the office of overseer, an overseer, and by the way, you can translate that as a bishop or as some of the old Englishes do, uh, but an overseer, an elder, a bishop, a pastor, it actually refers to the same office in the New Testament, so not different offices. And I know sometimes churches have created a really artificial hierarchy where you have a bishop who's kind of like a super pastor and he moves pastors around. But if you study this passage, Titus 1, Acts 20, you'll see that the words are used interchangeably. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to preach. He must be, in verse 4, one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. So the husband of one wife, the Greek New Testament literally says a one woman man. And this has been interpreted differently more recently in the last 60 or 70 years in different ways. But some of these are historical interpretations. So let me explain. Some would say the husband of one wife would disqualify a single person from serving as a pastor. I don't think that's what's in view. Now, do I think that it's normal and typical for a person to get married in this life? And the, of course, the answer is yes. Um, and that's why I think he includes this, because most people in this life get married unless God has gifted them specifically to be single in this life. And the Apostle Paul could claim that gift. It's not a spiritual gift as some have created it in a spiritual inventory of spiritual gifts. 
this is not something that God does through you as much as it's something that God does to you. And sometimes we need to be careful in that there are single people that we are always trying to fix up and marry off. When in reality, God may have called them to be single. They're not weird. They're not homosexual or lesbian or whatever you know, tag you want to put on them. They're just called to be single. And there's an advantage to that in that you have undistracted devotion to the kingdom of God. And Paul, the apostle, was one. Now, was Paul a pastor? Yes. How do I know? Well, from uh, statements like First Peter makes, he says that in, he calls himself a fellow elder. Uh, so he was a fellow pastor. Now, not uh, there aren't any elders today who are apostles, but all apostles were elders or, or pastors. So uh, certainly the chief elder would be the Lord Jesus. He was single, and he was certainly not disqualified. Some have said, like Roman Catholics who teach celibacy, uh, they take this portion of Scripture and they spiritualize it, and they say that this is a representation of a cardinal or a bishop, a pope, or the rank-and-file priest who's married to the church. And so they would argue that the children here who are under control are not literal children, but these are the congregants that he is to care for and oversee. Well, if you spiritualize the text, you can make the Bible basically mean anything you want. But they have a dogma of celibacy, so they have to defend it, and that's how they get around this passage. So one, I don't think it disqualifies single people, though I think the norm is for most pastors to be married in this life. But there have been some great pastors, not just like Paul, but in even recent history, like John R.W. Stott, an Anglican pastor, who pastored All Saints Church in London, and he was single his whole life, and uh, that's how he was able to write like 50 books in his lifetime, and he just gave a, a singular attention to the work of the kingdom. I don't think this is a reference to um, celibacy as the Roman Catholics teach. Some would say that this is a prohibition against bigamy or polygamy, that if a man was a bigamist, had two wives or three or more wives, that he was disqualified from serving in the office of pastor. That's certainly a problematic interpretation, but the most popular interpretation that's probably still floating out there today for the simple reason this would open the door for people who are not bigamists or polygamists, they may have been married two, three, four times to serve in the office of pastor or elder. The problem with this interpretation is this is a new covenant book. What might have been allowed under the old covenant due to the hardness of man's heart would not be even a consideration in our day. So there were believers like David, who's even deemed a man after God's own heart in both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, He's referred to with that wording. Uh, He had a number of wives and yet we will meet him in the kingdom of God. Today, if a person was a bigamist or a polygamist, he would be considered an unbeliever. But there were things that were allowed under the old covenant because the Spirit of God had not yet been given to regenerate people. And so I don't think this is a prohibition against that, not to mention understand, too, in the first century uh, when this book is written, uh, bigamy and polygamy was against the law under the Roman Empire. And it has been traditionally uh, under 
American law, but that appears to be changing. In, uh, in Massachusetts, not long ago, they uh, passed a local ordinance where they said polygamy was acceptable. And uh, I suppose uh, maybe if someone challenges that, it may go to the Supreme Court. But listen, if, if uh, gay marriage, so to speak, as they call it, it's not a marriage. You can call it a marriage, but it's not a marriage. Uh, if that's legal, then why couldn't polygamous or bigamous relationships be acceptable? Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I think in the last 10 days, there was a three men who were supposedly married to each other, and they just uh, were allowed to perform a legal adoption. Again, these are really problematic issues. And now, you know, you've got Christian organizations like uh, Bethany Christian Adoptive Agency that, you know, just uh, acquiesced and said, okay, we'll, we'll do gay adoptions now. Supposedly an evangelical group, and they have been historically, but they sold out for money. So I don't think this has anything to do with polygamy or bigamy, not at all. But most people who are divorced and who serve as elders, that's what they're going to tell you is terms of how they interpret this. Some would say that this was, well, a one-man kind of woman, uh, a one-man woman kind of guy in his heart. In other words, a non-flirtatious person. I think that's covered under self-control. And for Paul to list this separately, I don't think that's what's in view. And in fact, for 1,900 years of church history, no one thought that was in view. So sometimes if you uh, want to get a sense of maybe how the church has understood a verse of Scripture historically, you can go back and read the church fathers. And there was the early church fathers and the late church fathers. The early church fathers lived immediately after the apostles died out, and they wrote extensively. And there's one unanimous voice that a person who had been married before was uh, was not qualified to serve in this office. It had nothing to do with forgiveness. It had to do with modeling. It's kind of like I tell people it's often like capital punishment. The Bible actually teaches capital punishment. Now, I know the Catholic Church says we're pro-life as a church and that the Bible's against capital punishment. Uh, that's the Pope's uh, opinion, but it's certainly not what the Scripture teaches, and I have a whole message on that in Romans 13. Does the Bible really teach capital punishment? And it does, but under certain parameters and qualifications. And the reason God instituted capital punishment right after the flood in Genesis 9, and it's reaffirmed in the New Testament in passages like Romans 13, is not because he's down on life, but he's up on life. He wants to protect life. And so they effectively and efficiently applied capital punishment in England until the 1960s. Uh, one of the challenges in our day is that sometimes a person is found guilty, like there was a young man who walked into a church that's going on five years now in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed the pastor and eight other individuals. Uh, Dylan is his first name, and he's still sitting up in a prison cell in Columbia. He should be executed uh, for premeditated murder. That's what the scripture would say. But, you know, sometimes if a man commits, uh, you know, premeditated murder in 1980, he's not executed until, you know, 2015. And when there is a long distance between the crime 
and the punishment that goes with that crime, the book of Ecclesiastes says it becomes ineffective in terms of the punishment. In fact, the electric chair in uh, South Carolina has been broken for a number of years. It's not, it's not even re- been repaired. Uh, though I will say, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, uh, South Carolina reinstituted the firing squad as a means of execution. So maybe he'll be executed. I don't, I don't relish that. I hope he'll repent. Um, but that's the kind of thing that God did to protect life. Well, to protect marriage, God wants the ideal modeled in the office of elder and deacon. Listen, if, if I'm trying to sell you hair, hair tonic, some kind of tonic that grows hair, and I'm bald, I'm not very convincing. And if I've been married two or three times, because listen, if you open the door for one, you can open it for two, three, four times. You know, I just dealt with a, a, a an individual who came to Christ, and he told me he's on his fifth marriage. And I meet people often in their early 30s, and sometimes they're on a third marriage. And so God is trying to protect marriage. And so, no, a divorced person can serve in any capacity in the local church. He just cannot serve in the office of elder or deacon. He can be a missionary, he can be, do all kinds of things. But he cannot be an elder or deacon in the heartbeat of God's plan for his church, which is the local assembly. Not everyone agrees with that. Now, I go through very carefully all of those positions, uh, get the Search the Scriptures app, download the sermon on 1 Timothy 3, and I broke it off. Let's see, I would have broken it off in verse 7, 1 through 7, and you can listen to that careful instruction. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Bonnie from Bluffton writes, in the Old Testament, examples are given of a cutting covenant. How do we know that the parties involved walk through the pieces of flesh in a figure-eight pattern? Is that extra biblical information? I can't find this in Scripture. Well, it's not extra biblical. It comes from the covenant that God cut with uh, Abraham in Genesis uh, 15. So let me turn there. The covenant was initially established in Genesis 12 when God said to Abram, he's later named Abraham. I'll call him Abraham because Stephen on one occasion in his sermon refers to him as Abraham before God had changed his name. So I have biblical precedence for it. But God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'll bless you. I'll make you a great nation. Those who bless you, I'll bless and so on. Uh, most of us know the Abrahamic covenant. It's been restated in a number of places in Genesis. And here in Genesis 15 and in verse um Uh, Let me just pick it up in uh, verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So this is a, a prophecy that God is giving to Abraham And, of course, it's fulfilled in the 400 years of captivity when they are in Egypt. But then he goes on, he says, I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And, again, that's exactly what Moses will record, and that's what God did. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And if you remember, Abraham lived to the age of 175, if I remember correctly. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. 
for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So God, uh, four generations later, brings them back into this land that he had promised. Remember, God told Abraham to go to the land that he would show him, and he walked and he walked and he walked for months and months and months, and then God appeared to him and he said, this is the place, uh, it's Shechem, it's in Israel, and uh, we call that land today Israel. It's the promised land. Then we read, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming uh, torch which had passed between these pieces. So we see this flaming torch passing between these pieces. And these are symbols, the smoking oven and this flaming torch for God himself. Uh, Typically, when two men would uh, make a covenant, uh, I mean, we're talking about a serious deal here, um, a serious legal transaction. What you would do is you would take some animals and you would cut them in two and you'd put some on the left and some on the right with a little center aisle and you would walk through the dead animals and you would say, look, if I don't do what I am promising today, then you can deal with me as we have dealt with these animals. But when this covenant is made, Abram's asleep in God alone as metaphorically pictured here. And there is a number of theophanies. It's, it's more than a metaphor. It's an actuality. Uh, it's a theophany. A theophany is a appearance of of God in the Old Testament. And there's theophanies and there's Christophanies where Christ appears even um, before he's incarnated in the Old Testament. So when this covenant is made, uh, Abraham is asleep and God alone passes through the animal parts. In other words, God's word is making a clear statement that this covenant that he is making, and he goes on and he promises a piece of property has nothing to do with Abraham, and it has everything to do with God. Instead of two people walking through, Abraham doesn't in the dream see himself walk through. This is an unconditional, one-way covenant with the nation of Israel. This is God making a promise to Abraham. This is not Abraham making a promise to God. There's no conditions on this. And this is important because there are people today who are amillennial in their doctrine. Someone called in, I think, last week and said, is it a problem that my pastor is millennial?" And I said, well, yes and no. I mean, there have been good men in the history of the church who are millennial. They don't believe there's any future for Israel. And millennialism, of course, comes out of Roman Catholicism. But listen, God made some unconditional promises to the people of Israel. And the church is not the new Israel. When the new covenant is prophesied in Jeremiah 31, God goes on to state that this is going to be fulfilled in the Jews. And he said, as long as you see the sun in the sky and the moon and the stars, that's how long I'm committed to the nation of Israel. He's talking about physical national Israel. He said, if you can measure the earth, which you can't, and the universe, which you can't, if you could, then this would be a conditional kind of relationship, but it's unconditional. God doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell Abram what he can also know about this land. And and so on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So this is God making a covenant in the traditional way, except 
he's making the covenant in a unilateral way where it has nothing to do with the obedience of Israel. And that's why God's not done with the Jew. And Christians who say that the church is the new Israel have really sadly a distorted view of God's relationship to the Jew. And the Jew is very important because they are God's really timepiece of what he's doing prophetically in the world today. And he used Israel to bring the first coming and he will use them to bring about the second coming. Rick, I think we have someone who's waiting on the phone and we give preference to live callers. So let's go there. All right. Very good. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, Carl Brogy and Rich Porchner. Yes, my question is, <clears throat> the Bible says that uh, we're supposed to have peace for all men, correct? So it's a hard come that Jesus said, uh, I don't come to bring peace, but a sword. So we're bringing, the, you know, division between mother and daughter, father and son, you know, and so on. So how can you balance them two verses if Christ, you know, bring division, you know, between us for his sake? For the gospel's sake, yet we're supposed to have peace with all men. How can we have peace with all men if the gospel is an offense to all men? Well, it's a fair question, but you misquoted the verse. Um, so you don't want to be like the devil <laughs> who, who took Scripture and misquoted it to Christ. And so in Romans 12 and verse 18, it's a conditional statement. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men what's the implication? It's not always possible, but if possible, you should seek peace. You don't want to be some self-generated martyr in your family where, as you mentioned, and correctly so, that Christ said that sometimes living for him is like a sword. It divides family members. No, you don't want to create some kind of persecution. You want to live at peace with all people if possible, but it's not always possible. Uh, sometimes there will be people that will just oppose you by virtue of the fact that you are a Christian. And there's nothing in this world that you will be able to do to to please them and to placate them. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world Hate you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours as well. So that's just part of living the Christian life. Though on the other side of this, sometimes you may have done something to be offensive to someone. And you go in humility and you ask for forgiveness. You say, hey, listen, what I said was really wrong will you forgive me? And the person says, no, I won't. I won't forgive you. Well, uh, you've carried out your responsibility, if possible, as much as it depends on you. So sometimes two people are at odds, and it typically takes two to tangle, tango, and it, and it might be that you are you know, 20% wrong and they're 80% wrong. You have to own your part of the issue. You have to own your own sin and you go in humility and you ask for forgiveness, but it's apparent that they're not going to release you. Well, you can relax your conscience and move forward with the Lord because it's not possible in that situation based on their response for you to be at peace with all men. 
Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Kathy, for, or rather Bonnie from Bluffton, well, we did that one. Leisha from Beaufort writes, I believe the Lord is prompting me to pray for my children and grandchildren in the context of crowns. Can you point me to a study on the crowns that, that we will lay at the feet of Jesus? Most references I pulled up in a brief search describe five crowns, but there are also some who describe 12 or 13 crowns, among which crown is used as a verb which occurs as clothe, adorn, or beautify. Well, uh, to make uh, more than five crowns is to be guilty of clear what we would call eisegesis. Exegesis is when we read out of the Scripture what is plainly taught. Eisegesis is when we read into the Scripture something that is not plainly taught. And so we did a series on Revelation, and I went through the five crowns because there are only five that are mentioned in Scripture. In fact, we touched on this recently in our series on James. Um, Just like hell is not the same for everyone who goes to hell. Hell is an awful place. Any who go there, it will be absolutely miserable. But the Scripture is clear that punishment is met out according to their deeds, according to their works. So somehow in the perfect justice of God, all lost people will be miserable in hell, but not all lost people will be equally miserable. And God is the righteous judge, and he's assigned all judgment to Christ, and he is going to dictate that judgment accordingly. Well, for the believer, heaven is a wonderful place for any who go there, but it will not be the same for everyone who goes there. There will be differing rewards in heaven, And one aspect of rewards will be also seen during the millennial reign of the Messiah. And those rewards are described in Scripture as crowns. And there's a number that are mentioned. There is the imperishable crown. And so, you know, Paul talks about running in such a way that we may win. And how he buffets his body. He he disciplines his life, his schedule that he might receive the imperishable crown. And some Christians are just, they lack discipline or or they're lazy or they don't deny themselves in the way that they need to. And so they make little impact for the kingdom. Uh, The scripture speaks of the evangelistic crown uh, that the Christian is to share his faith. And we are to be involved in the process of bringing people to Christ. And God can use us in different capacities and in different ways it might be something as simple as, you know, inviting someone to church. We were in a restaurant the other day, and as uh, she was bringing the bill, I said, hey, by the way, do you go to church anywhere? And she said, no, we just moved here. And I said, well, I would like to invite you to the church I attend. I didn't tell her I was the pastor. Um, where do you go? I said, well, we go to Community Bible Church. She said, where is that? And I said, well, if you just went down to this stoplight where the Walmart is, and you turned left, and you went four miles, there's this large church with a, a, a big cross and a c- copper roof. I usually say a fountain that's blowing, but the fountain's broken right now. And uh, she said, yeah, I've seen that. I said, well, you should come. I said, we have two services every Sunday. She said, thank you. And, uh, you know, listen, there are people, sometimes you just invite to church. And because of your invitation, uh, they end up hearing the gospel and are saved. So there's the evangelistic crown that's given to those who are involved in bringing people into the kingdom. Uh, Paul speaks of what we might call the expecting crown. Uh, He says in his last will and testament to Timothy, in the future, 
there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge will reward to me, but not just to me, but everyone who loves his, his, uh, loves his appearing. You know, a Christian should love and yearn for the return of Jesus. You know, sometimes churches don't speak about biblical prophecy and the fact that Jesus is coming back. Listen, that's a major teaching. A third of the scripture is prophetic. And pastors should be speaking about the return of Christ from heaven, especially in our day where God is setting the stage. And Israel, which we just addressed in the last question, is a key uh, component to the return of Christ. And what God is doing through Israel today is of great significance. But listen, if you long and look and you're awaiting and expecting the return of God's Son from heaven, uh, that has a purifying effect on your life. That's what First John teaches. Um, the scripture says in first John three, that you purify yourself as he's pure. As you look towards that, there's a shepherd's crown, which as much as anything is for a pastor, uh, though I think God may apply it to other, uh, avenues. Maybe you're a woman and you shepherd a group of women in a Bible study, or you're a dad and you're certainly the shepherd over your home. Well, Peter is exhorting pastors. He calls himself a fellow elder as I mentioned earlier in reference to the question that came in uh, on how to understand the husband of one wife. Hey, listen, if Peter was the first pope, he didn't know anything about it. He calls himself a fellow elder, and he speaks about the fact when the chief elder, the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory for those who are faithful. And then most recently, we studied in the book of James what we call the the trials crown in Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, the scripture says, for once he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life. So there's only five crowns, but those would be good things to pray into the lives of your grandchildren. But my wife did a a topic, I'm sure it's on the um, Mothering from the Heart app on how to pray for your children. And, you know, among other things, you ought to pray first that they come to know Christ as their personal Savior. And the sooner you can lead them into a relationship with Christ, the the better. But that's a work of God, and you need to pray that they'll have a sense of guilt and uh, a realization of their sin and an understanding of what Jesus did for them. You should certainly pray that they grow in the grace of God and that they develop a healthy love and a reverential fear and respect for the Lord. Uh, You should pray that they learn how to honor their parents and the implications of the promise that's associated with that. Uh, She's taught that you should pray that your children begin to discover once they are regenerate what their spiritual gift is and what their strengths are, their natural talents, their acquired skills, their spiritual gifts given at conversion, because someday they'll give an account to the Lord as to how they use that. You should certainly pray, especially in the day that we're living in, because America is so quickly changing, that your children would be prepared for persecution because it's growing. I just uh, met with one of our seniors who is graduating from Community Bible Church Christian Academy for home-based education, and I told her, listen, the school you're going to, you are going to face some really pointed persecution you are going to feel very lonely at times. So among other things, when you get there, you need to find a good local church. We always try to help people to identify a good local church in the community where they're going off to school at. And two, you need to find some fellow Christians that you can covenant with and pray together and encourage each other. 
because, you know, the fact that you don't believe that lesbianism and homosexuality and premarital sex are normal and because you're not woke and, you know, you don't uh, ascribe to socialism that's being taught on the universities. And by the way, this week in South Carolina, there is two really important bills that are out there that we should be contacting our people about. One is the REACH Act, and it's an act that deals with teaching the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and the Declaration of Independence. It's been the law of the land for decades, but since the early 90s, for the most part, all of the schools in South Carolina have just blown it off. Now, there's a few that have started to keep it again, uh, but the bill has been modified so that no one can really gripe about it. And uh, your people, uh, your, your senator, your representative, actually, it's already passed in the Senate. You just need to call your local representative because it will probably come up for a vote next week. It's in committee, but you need to let them hear. And the other thing is medical marijuana. And so, you know, right here in this area in Hilton Head, Beaufort, we have Senator Tom Davis, where every time he stands up on the floor of the Senate, he gives, as much as anything, I suppose, as a libertarian, why we should have medical marijuana. I hope you will oppose that. They need to hear from you this week if you live in the state of South Carolina and you are listening. Uh, I spoke with a, a key leader yesterday. He called me actually last night at 9 o'clock and he said, Pastor Carl, I met today with all of the sheriffs across the entire state of South Carolina who were able to come, and 100% of them oppose med- the use of medical marijuana, and 76% of medical doctors in the state of South Carolina ap- uh, 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 are against medical marijuana. Listen, it's, it's, uh, it's the first step to recreational marijuana, and it will only help to destroy this state. But we need to call up a Tom Davis and say, look, I'm sick and tired of you promoting medical marijuana. And if you do it again, I guarantee you will never get my vote again. People like that need to hear from you. You know, one phone call says something. When they get 50 phone calls, they think, wow, there's a lot of people who are opposing me on this issue, and they need to hear it. Let's go to the next question. Ronnie from Okatee writes, Now that COVID restrictions on gatherings seem to be relaxing, will Community Bible Church be returning to normal anytime soon? Yeah, Lord willing, anytime soon, uh, we hope. So come this Sunday, you'll find out a lot. Come Sunday uh, to Community Bible Church. We meet at 9, 15, and 11, and I'll have some important information to share. Let's go to the next question. Kelly from Savannah, Georgia writes, could you send me some information that confirms that Beth Moore and Joyce Meyer are false prophets or are against God and how they conduct their ministries? In our Sunday school class, uh, someone was following these ladies and thought that they were fine and good. We need concrete information to convince different ones that these women should not be followed. These people said they want to see some proof and then they would believe their inaccuracy. Do these women preach to men, or is their ministry just to women that many men like to listen to? We need proof. I've heard Pastor Rogi talk about Beth Moore receiving text messages from God and preaching in her church on Sundays. I've heard Joyce Meyer speak before many years ago on the TV. She was great. I don't remember her saying anything against God, but I knew not to follow her. Could you please tell me or give me some information that I can take to our class to show and prove others why they should not listen to, follow, 
or do these ladies' Bible studies? If you're not able to actually put your hands on written proof of Beth and Joyce's disobedience to God, could you please email me what you do know about them and explain about them and how they are disobedient to God? Well, I'll let you do the work, but I'll tell you how you can do the work. You can go to a website called ReformationCharlotte.org, and under their search bar, just type in uh, Beth Moore, and that will give you direct quotations from different places that she's spoken. But what I'm what I've shared in the past, it's no mystery. It's not like some you know obscure view or conclusion that I've held to. Beth Moore has no problem in speaking in churches on Sunday morning to mixed audiences. She gets around the clear scriptural teaching by saying that she is under the pastor's authority to preach and to speak. And so she has spoken in a number of different churches in America on a Sunday morning, opening the scriptures, not sharing her testimony, but opening the scriptures, teaching and preaching the word of God, something that first Timothy expressly says that a woman is not to do. And that's very, very sad, but she's been habitually disobedient. She, in addition, has endorsed and speaks about, you know, her good friends whom she needs to rebuke and say what they are teaching is erroneous. Women who have endorsed gay marriage, and she needs to stand up against them. Uh, In addition, she does have, quote-unquote, these direct revelations from God, where she, in the first person, begins to quote God as to what God specifically said to her. Listen, this is absolute garbage. This is absolute error. And again, it's not a mystery if you either, A, follow her on Twitter, all you have to do is read some of the things that she has tweeted out, and you will soon discover that this is actually what she is advocating. Uh, She is advocating that you can have this special experience beyond the Word of God, where God speaks to you. Um, Listen to my next to the last sermon in the Revelation series. I give some direct quotes by Beth Moore in terms of things that she has said. But ReformationCharlotte.org, Joyce Meyer, I mean, she's just a wacko. I mean, her theology is so bad, how any woman who even has a cursory understanding of the Scripture could follow her. Well, this is the problem of our day. See, the the problem of our day is that God's people are undertaught. They're not being taught sound doctrine. That's why they can be so easily swayed by a Beth Moore or a Joyce Meyer. A pastor is supposed to get up and teach the sheep. But what do we have pastors doing today? They're not teaching the sheep. They're not feeding the sheep. They're, They're entertaining the goats. They're doing just the opposite of what God calls them to do. And that's the sad day that we, we live in. All right. Kimberly from Bluffton, South Carolina says, I saw this clock on the web. It looks like a clock and prophetic calendar. Can you tell me if it's significant and how to read it? I don't know if you can see this. Uh, I'm going to give you a bigger one. But just uh, since you haven't probably had a chance to look this over at all, uh, let me tell you right off the bat that... Uh, no, I can see it. I can um, see it. That's the Jewish calendar. Okay. And so what it's done is it's taken the uh, Jewish months and it's um, created a circle 
and they have um, tried to show you where the Jewish months correspond to, you know, January, February, March, April, May, June, July. Um, and then what they've done here is they've taken the um, Jewish holidays, and there are four uh, holidays in the spring, and there are three in the fall. And the four holidays that were celebrated and still are celebrated every spring um, would be, uh, you know, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and Shavuot or, or Pentecost. And so those were fulfilled all in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by accident that Jesus died on Passover. He was buried in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And then 50 days later on Pentecost, again, we think of Pentecost just simply as a uh, New Testament kind of thing. Uh, it actually goes all the way back to the Torah where God gives specific um, uh, instructions on what should be done. So it was the 50th day after the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of um, uh, the Feast of Weeks was celebrated. So those were all fulfilled in the first coming. There are still uh, three holidays yet to be fulfilled that the Jews, again, they all, you know, celebrate these things. Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths, and uh, we are going to Israel, God willing, uh, in September, right at the very end of September, really pretty much the first two weeks in October. So two separate trips. So if you're interested in coming to Israel, go to searchthescriptures.org. Uh, you basically, I think, I've got to confirm this uh, this week, will need to be registered about 90 days before the trip leaves. In either case, um, you know, we'll be there in some time frames. I, I planned it right after the holidays so that uh, we wouldn't have any interference with visiting various sites, especially the Jewish-run sites. But, like, uh, they still meet in booths, so to speak, and that is going to be fulfilled in the future. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that's going to be fulfilled in the future. And so there's still three Jewish holidays that have a future fulfillment, and they'll begin to unfold their fulfillment during the time of Jacob's trouble or the tribulation. So this is the Jewish calendar you're looking at. The only thing that concerned me was that in this particular website, this individual who posted this in 2014 was saying that, well, the rapture will take place in 2016. Right, yeah, so the website is not good. The calendar is. The calendar just reflects the Jewish calendar. And I will say, you know, people like, for instance, take the the fall feast and they think, oh, Jesus is going to come back on this fall feast. And there have been a number of people like Van Campen and others who have uh, said, well, you know, Jesus is coming back in this day in September and, you know, just some really weird stuff. Nobody knows the day or the hour and the rapture can happen at any moment. These actual feasts will happen and be fulfilled in in, in a futuristic sense, after the church is removed during the tribulation, with the Feast of Booths ultimately being fulfilled during the millennial reign of the Messiah, because it's a, it's a picture of the coming kingdom of the Lord. So the website is lousy, but the calendar is just a Jewish calendar. All right. Tim from Bridgeport, Connecticut says, not sure if you've ever heard of Ken Johnson. 
He puts out material about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Book of Enoch. He states, and I believe it also, that this material is not Scripture, but a lot of what's in there seems to go along with what's written in the Bible. When the Messiah will first show up, the rapture, etc. I was wondering if you had an opinion on these writings. So, Tim from Bridgeport, Connecticut, you might want to consider taking the course that we offer at the Institute of Biblical Studies on Bibliology. And so I have a whole section where I deal with the apocryphal books and the pseudepigraphal books. The apocryphal books are the books written between Malachi and Matthew during that 400-year period. The pseudepigraphal books are graphe, um, pseudo-false, so the false writings, as they're called, they're written after the canon of Scripture is completed. So interestingly, the book of Enoch uh, is some would say quoted in the book of Jude. <coughs> Excuse me. So they try to lend some credence to the book. Um, if you read Jude 14, it says it was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So this particular Enoch is identified as the seventh from Adam. You know that Enoch who walked with God and suddenly he disappeared. So we know specifically which Enoch this is. But just because Jude quotes what Enoch said, and Enoch was a prophet, doesn't mean that this is coming from the book of Enoch. There's a lot of things that came via oral tradition that were ultimately codified. Even Moses, you know, wrote about specific things. He had no doubt some written resources to be able to, you know, document the generations that are outlined in, in Genesis, but no doubt he had oral traditions that were passed down. But what was put in the scripture is what was codified by God as being inspired. So which came first, the book of Enoch or, um, you know, the quotation that Jude makes? I think you can make an argument. But, you know, even let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he's quoting the book of Enoch. That doesn't mean the rest of the book is inspired any more than in Titus when Paul quotes Epimenides, that he is saying that all of Epimenides' writings are inspired. But the one quotation that he makes that is introduced into the canon of Scripture by Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit is inspired, so to speak. It is authoritatively true. So some of what the Apocrypha and pseudepigraphal writings um, have are true. They're correct. But at the same time, much of it is false, just like much of what is in the book of Enoch is incorrect as well. We're out of time, but thanks for joining us today for the Bible line. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 